0: Acts chapter 2, uh, verses 14, that's a big section, through verse 41. This is, again, picking up on the day of Pentecost. We looked last week at the Spirit pour, being poured out, falling upon, uh, and filling the, di- the disciples that were in the upper room. And now we're going to get explanation for what that meant. And Peter gives us an example that God uses everybody. Everybody. And that's us. So let's look at the word of God together. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. On every male servant and female servants, in those days I will pour out my Spirit, and they shall prophesy... Loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, "I saw the law; the Lord always before me, for He is at my right hand, that I shall not be shaken." Therefore, <coughs> excuse me, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your holy one see corruption. that he was not abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh see corruption this Jesus God raised up and of all that and of that we all are of that we are all witnesses being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and him having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing for David did not ascend into heaven but he himself says the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard, they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent. Repent. and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Father, well up in us. Give us illumination by your Spirit. God, I pray that you would add to your kingdom through our lives. Please, as we witness for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I remember back a few decades ago when I was in college. Uh, We got a hold of a quote that at the time was attributed to St. Francis of Assisi, or Assisi, because you don't want to be a sissy. (laughs) It was this, and you may recall this, preach the gospel at all times, use words when necessary. And as young college students, we thought, what, that's powerful life changing the world. That's in the college ministry that we were a part of. We got a hold of that, and it was momentum. And that momentum lasted uh, for young Christians who were were looking to impact the world with the gospel and through the actions of Jesus. This was a good instinct. It was a motivation that is still necessary today, but it actually, for many of us, was a cop-out. Because we didn't want to share the gospel with our words, because we didn't want to be fools. And we didn't want to say the wrong things, and we didn't have all the answers. See, we're supposed to let our good work shine for the gospel. Matthew 5.16 reminds us that. But there comes a time when we need to share our witness of the power and the glory of the resurrection of Christ. Now, we are not eyewitnesses of the resurrection, but we are witnesses of his resurrection power coming in us by the presence of the Spirit. So it turns out, St. Francis of Assisi never said that. He shared the gospel with everything, and I mean everything. He was known to preach to the birds. So he lived his life, and he created an order that everybody would follow in uh, back then, hundreds of years ago and the... There, create these orders that people would join in, and that was the the friars, the monks, the nuns, the brothers, all that within the church. He created an order to live this way. But he preached everybody. He he was both sides of the coin. He preached the gospel with his words and with his actions, with his word and with his deeds. Now, these days, we too can fall for the cop-out excuse that we don't have the knowledge or the credentials, or the eloquence to share the gospel with others. And remember, those are the same things that Moses tried to say to God that he couldn't go before Pharaoh. Um, slow speech, I don't have the eloquence, I don't know anything. Uh, I, I'm, I'm disqualified from being in Pharaoh's house. Remember what I did, God? We use the same exact excuses. And we will usually try to put someone that we think can share the gospel really well, an expert, somebody's credentialed. We try to put our loved ones or friends, we try to put them in proximity, like, all right, go. Gospel, something, and get saved. Do something. There are times when that needs to happen. And as a church, we have uh, hosted the Alpha Course, which is uh, an introduction to the Christian faith. And it's a weekly dinner that comes alongside of a presentation and then a table discussion. Hopefully, uh, we'll do one again in the fall. But transform this room, put tables out. It's really cool. We invite people in. Come. Come. Let's discuss. Let's hear. I give a presentation. Yeah, I got credentials. Yeah, he says it well. Go ahead. Let Pastor Jeff do. It's cool. We want to do that. But there comes a moment when God wants you to share with your neighbor or your family member about the witness of God's power in your life. And with the promise that the Spirit gives us the words in those moments. But listen, believers are empowered to proclaim and testify, same word as witness, We are empowered to proclaim and testify of the resurrection power of Jesus inside of us. And this passage is a great reminder that those that God uses, whom God uses, to proclaim this life, his life, are not the ones with superior knowledge or the credentials or the eloquence. This is Peter he doesn't have the... Remember, they're, they're speaking in tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance on the day of Pentecost and everybody's hearing the gospel proclamation or the, the works of God in their own language and they're stunned because aren't these guys from Galilee? They don't talk straight. They, they have thick accents, but yet they're speaking perfect dialects from what I grew up with. These are not credentialed people. These are not those, well, that was just for that time. Same spirit, same gospel that fills every believer to empower us for this witness. God uses the ones who are filled with the Spirit. And realize this. If Peter wouldn't have obeyed and gotten up to preach that day, then those 3,000 souls would not have been added to the church. Now, remember, we have God's sovereignty in here too. And we want God to do things because of our obedience, not in spite of our disobedience. We want to cooperate with the Lord. And we want to be available for the opportunities that he has for us to be his mouthpiece for the gospel when that time comes. See, we need the supernatural to touch our natural communication. We need the supernatural of God to touch the natural. And he uses ordinary mouthpieces. Peter is that ordinary mouthpiece. Now, as we look at this sermon, this is probably this is not the entirety of Peter's sermon. Luke wasn't there. Luke wrote the book of Acts. He wasn't there, but he probably compiled everybody's memories, but these are the main points of it. And we can learn from the main points. The major points. But he, he uses these as an instruction on what makes a great sermon. That's what he's helping pastors do, preachers do. But let's remember this Peter. Read that Peter stood up and lifted his voice. This is the same man. Remember back to Sean's message on Easter Sunday that he looked at the, what happened, the resurrection power that happened in Peter. Because listen, this is the same man that denied Jesus. Just a few weeks prior. A little over a month, six weeks. Same man that went back to his fishing occupation because he figured God was done with him and he couldn't make sense of Jesus being alive and what that meant now. The same man who suffered from foot and mouth disease with Jesus, thinking he was speaking up in all the positive ways, and Jesus just to remind him, No, get behind me, Satan. You not have your mind set on the things of God. And this is the same man who stood up on that day, that day of Pentecost, and spoke in the power, with the power of the Spirit. He was given in that moment supernatural understanding to put Joel's prophecy together and put the writings of David and the Psalms together and put the, in the moment the Spirit gave that to him. And what does he say? What, this ordinary mouthpiece is just explaining new life. That's what we're we're tasked with. So Peter says, oh, what you're seeing now was prophesied already. So this is what what Joel said. This is that. And he gives the explanation. But he first clarifies for the crowd that what they were seeing was not the result of drunkenness. It was not the result of wine. As they said, these guys, and if you look at verse 13, others mocking, said they're filled with new wine. Peter says this. This is how down-to-earth Peter is. You guys are crazy. Drunks don't even start drinking this early in the day. We're not drunk. This is something better. This is something more powerful. But capture this. This feeling of the Spirit, people are looking at, and the closest thing that they can equate to it is drunkenness. They're filled with new wine. And when Paul tells the Ephesian church, do not be drunk, Drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. What is he saying? This shows that the Spirit's presence is often felt in a euphoric sense. A sense that alleviates pressure. A sense that brings this this joy and peace and pleasure without having the loss of the control that drunkenness brings. This is what God provides. That's why I hear a lot of times when people who are were addicted to, to substances, they get saved and they, they might say, this is a high. The high with Jesus is better than any high I had. There's truth to that. Because when the Spirit, when we feel His presence, it really does lift us. It really does free us in a way that substances cannot do. Substances, we think there's a freedom there, but you know, it just comes back to control. And then Peter points to this prophecy of Joel, which the crowds were very familiar with because they're Jews, and he's making the connection that the giving of the Spirit is what that happened, that's what was foretold by the prophet Joel. It begins with the time period when salvation will be available for all, for all who believe in Jesus Because he was the perfect once and for all sacrifice for sin. Everyone now who is filled with the Spirit, he says this. Look, in those days, in verse 18, the second half of verse 18, in those days I will pour out my Spirit and they shall prophesy. What does that mean? Everyone who is filled with the Spirit is now a prophet. So we can all tell the future? No, not necessarily. A prophet is always understood in Scripture as one who speaks the the words of God, speaks God's word to his people. We speak the word of God. We speak the the word of God when we witness to it to non-believers in the hopes that they would they would repent of their sins and be saved. But this happens when we... Well, words of knowledge and wisdom and the gifting of the Spirit. As we know, we just think of people and we're able to offer encouragement and perspective and wisdom and discernment. We're, we're, we're prophesying. We are speaking God's Word to people. We proclaim Him to believers and to believers. Joel's prophecy shows that God's Spirit was for those, no matter their relational hierarchy, because look, on your sons and your daughters, on your men and your old men, your young men, your old men, what's he saying? In the Roman culture, they would have understood, have sons and daughters. It's like, well, women had a different place. It was, it was the men who got to do all of the, the work that mattered. God says, no, I'm, I'm doing this no matter what the relational hierarchy, no matter the age, young and old, and no matter the social status. He says he's pouring out his spirit on male and female servants. This is a huge moment that's connected. But we have to remember that we are never, ever beyond usefulness when we are filled with God's spirit. Peter gives us that great example. We are never beyond usefulness. He, he denied Jesus, his friend. No, Jesus said, I still have work for you to do. The Apostle Paul, persecuting the church, responsible at, at his approval. Stephen dies. We'll read of that in a few chapters. God says, no, I have work for you to do. Moses, who kills two Egyptians, he says, no, I have work for you to do. And what is that work that we are pointing to? Our work is to point to the work of Christ. Because then, in verse 22, Peter brings up Jesus. He directs everybody's attention to, first, the reality of Jesus. He was a man sent by God, and he was proven by God by his signs and wonders. All of Jesus' teaching, uh, all of his, think of his miracles, authenticated his teaching, they proved who he was. And then Peter also appeals to their common knowledge. As you yourselves know, this Jesus, everybody knew. Everybody in Jerusalem knew the rumor of his resurrection. Everybody knew the story. They're meeting people that said they saw him. It's around. This is not hidden under a, a, a rock or something. You know, everybody knows about this. And some of them may have seen him. Some of them may have seen him hanging on the cross. And they were yelling curses at him. All of the events of Jesus' life were still fresh in everyone's mind. And then Peter highlights their responsibility. See, God sent him and proved him. You know about it. And you killed him. That's courage in that moment, right? There's there's, uh, obviously at least 3,000 that are there listening. There's probably a whole lot more. Peter stands up with his 11 buddies. Matthias is new to the group. Maybe Matthias is like, whoa, Peter, hold on. No, they're all filled with the Spirit, and he tells them, you crucified him. You killed him. You handed him over to lawless men, and, and his Jesus' blood is on your hands. But let's ask this question, too. Look at verse 23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So what is it? Who killed Jesus? Remember several years ago, there was a big... A lot of people were asking this question. Who killed Jesus? It was the the Roman centurions who drove the nails, whipped him and drove the nails. Yeah, they killed him. But it was... It was people... there's a responsibility that Peter says, look, you killed him. Yes, some of you were a part of the crowds that wanted him crucified and were yelling, crucify him. But bigger than that, your sins killed him on the cross. And that's us too. So we bear responsibility in that. But then he's also saying, but ultimately, it was the Lord that killed him. God killed his son. Isaiah 53 verse 10 says, yet... It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. See, God had a lot of blessing that would come through that sacrifice. So everybody bore responsibility. But ultimately, this is given because God had a plan that he he foreshadowed way back in Genesis chapter 3 with saying that the the woman's seed would overcome the serpent. And then we see all over the place, through the Old Testament, we see these pictures of this foreshadowing where the people are longing, can we just have a sacrifice to do away with the sacrifices? God says, absolutely. But it wasn't going to be an animal. It was going to be His son. And then Peter speaks very plainly about the resurrection of Jesus. You know, you can ask the... Uh, some people have asked the question. Maybe you've encountered it. But there, there's not a lot of argumentation in the disciples for that the resurrection really happened. We don't find that in the New Testament. Like today, you know, the quest for the historical Jesus. Did he really rise from the dead? Every Easter, there's some program that's going to try to figure out that they found the tomb of Jesus, and they're going to go in there, and it's going to be a Geraldo Riviera moment where they undo the door, and there's nothing in there every single time because he rose. there's not a lot of argumentation because the disciples knew that everybody knew about it. Jesus rose from the dead. And you know what? That, that gives us confidence that all that he said is true. Because you know what? He said he would rise from the dead. So if he said that and it happened, then everything else that he said, that's true. So how do we know that we have the one way to get to God with this, this world of religious thought? When when you have, you think about this example as well. Uh, you've heard it said that, you know, there's five people that, five people come up to an elephant. They don't know it's an elephant because they're blind and they, they've never been a, around uh, this particular element, elephant perhaps so somebody comes around the leg and he's feeling the leg and he describes it as a tree and somebody comes to the belly and describes it as a big sphere another one comes to the tail and describes it like a it was a small like a snake and then somebody goes to the tusk and says no it's it's hard and rigid and somebody goes to the trunk and they're describing these different things and so the thought is all the religions of the world are coming to God from different angles and they're giving their different perspective but yet it's all the same thing So all the religions of the world are coming to God, and we just have to accept everybody. To face value, it's kind of like, "Mm, all right. But ask this question if somebody ever brings that to you. What if the elephant trumpets? Then all the blind people know. This is an elephant. God has trumpeted. He He sent Jesus, and he has trumpeted who Jesus is. His son. That's how we know. This is true. But we know it's true because he rose from the dead. So it's all true. And then we see uh, he, the Peter then goes to David, and, and David is David, he's pointing out that David is awaiting a heavenly king. David's not satisfied with his own kingship. Everybody else is. And now the people that Peter is speaking to are saying, Can we just have a king like David? We want want a king like David, and, and God put that desire in them. But here, Peter is saying, David was looking for somebody not like David, but better. And he proved it by writing about it. David was seen as the true king of Israel, and they waited another true king to lead them. And Peter points out that the king that they looked to was looking to another king. A king that would be superior, far superior to who he was. He was looking, David was looking to the king who was always before him to secure his eternity in God's presence in order to experience everlasting joy. That's what verses 25 through 28 are describing. There's an eternal king that David is looking for that will will be with him and will not let him taste corruption, will deal with his sinfulness in order to have everlasting joy in his presence, gladness with your presence And then he says, Peter just points out that God fulfills his promises. What he has promised has been fulfilled by the pouring out of the Spirit. And this this pouring out is not a drizzle. it's It's not just an afternoon shower. But think tropical, heavy downpour. God, it's wetting everything. Everything is affected. And since Jesus is the rightful, true, superior king to David as part of his kingly reign, he sent out his presence in the form of the Spirit to be upon all, in all of his people so they can fulfill his mission. Because remember, Isaiah 53 gives the mission. He will make, when he, his soul makes an, uh, an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring and prolong his days. And the Lord will prosper. How's the Lord prospering Jesus? Adding more people to the kingdom. That's what he's doing. And since Jesus is the, this rightful, true, superior king, we, we here David makes a bold statement in verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. Christ is Messiah. He's filling in the blanks for, for these Jews. This is the Messiah. And this is what Peter writes in 1 Peter. This is what angels were longing. They were peering into from all eternity. They're peering into the course of human history, and they're looking for who the Messiah is. Everybody's looking for the Messiah. Everybody's looking for a true king. Now, this is every preacher's dream. This is, it's not just preacher, but this is everybody. When you share the gospel with somebody, you, you want them to say, man, what should I do? Not, well, this happened to me once. Sharing the gospel with a man. And he just went, man, if, if somebody would just tell me what to do, I'll do it. Really? That's kind of easy. I just share the gospel in like three minutes. And But God had been working on him. It's like, well, let's pray. <laughs> Just an amazing moment. But we all, we want to be cut to the heart. But we want our lives and our, our words to express something that draws people to us that say, what should I do? How should I do this? You know, the people are cut to the heart. And Peter doesn't mince words, uh, words when he told them, that even though Jesus died as God's plan, they were the ones that were at fault. They killed him. They were completely responsible. This this conviction that the Spirit brings upon the hearts of unbelievers, and you remember back when God put it on you, it just, we know, he died for me. It was my sins that put him there. Kept him on that tree. signifies how each of us have sinned, and our sins participated in killing Jesus. And then he says this. The same word that he heard. Well, he didn't hear. He heard Jesus over and over again. But the same word that John the Baptist shows up on the scene and then Jesus. It's the first word of the gospel. Repent. When somebody's asking, what should I do? Repent. But they don't let Peter uh, offer the response. They're asking for the response. What should we do? He said, repent. See, salvation is not possible without repentance. And repentance really is the first fruit of saving faith. It's the first fruit of, well really, our faith that Jesus has died for us in our place is the first evidence that God has done a work in our heart to bring out the hard heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh that is sensitive to who He is and His glory. And then we say, God, I don't, I don't want to continue in sin. I don't want to make up the rules for my life. I want to obey you. I want to learn your rules, and I want to obey your rules. Because they're good, and they're benevolent, and they're, they're righteous. And then he asks for their commitment. He tells them to be baptized as a sign of their identity in Christ and a sign of their forgiveness. This is not a baptism in order to get forgiveness. This is a baptism to demonstrate, to tell the world that they have been forgiven of their sins. What a glorious thing. And 3,000 souls are the first fruits of that harvest. What a powerful day. So what is the message that we preach? What is the message that we witness, that we share? We can all begin at different points, and the sermons that we have in the book of Acts all begin at different points, and they're responding to the people that are in front of them. And so as we are asking the Lord, how do I share the gospel with people, we first have to be aware and discerning about where where people are in their lives and what they're sharing with us, because we need to start with where they are and bring them to Jesus with words. So They should encompass four things. Our gospel presentation should encompass four things. But we need to, we start at different points, perhaps. The first is God. God really is there. And he created everything. And our attempts to try to redo what God has created, have created, have have caused the calamity that we experience all around us. So when people, why why are people so hating of one another? Why is, oh. If I can just offer some advice. I'm, I'm, I'm driving around. This is maybe too big a can of worms to open at this moment. Uh, the little signs ban hate, not books. Um, if we need to have further conversation, please help. Uh, please, I'm grateful. I'm come to lunch. We'll talk. We need to ban hate and make sure. That what our children are able to access in a library is going to be for their edification, not for trying to redefining who they are as individuals that God has made. But we ban hate, as well as so this ban hate not books is it's uh, our culture just loves to say things without thinking about how they sound. But as Christians, what do we do if we see that? It's like I'll ban, I'll ban you with the book. No, we shouldn't sound like that. Fire all the libraries. No, no. We need to be in the culture, but we need to recognize we, we represent God. And as we obey his created order and we work, uh, um, as we strive to shine with the light of his created order, even in marriage as husband and wife, we want people to say, what should I do? Because I see something in you, and I don't feel it in my, own, in my own life. What should I do? So we start with God. Well, we incorporate God. But man, we've tried to redefine everything. We, we don't want to obey God's rules. We want to make up the rules and have God obey our rules. It's all around our culture today. So what do we do? That's the predicament we're in. We're stuck. We can't do anything about it. Because we think God just needs to be replaced. And so the, the people think that we just need to remove God all the time. And so secularism becomes the, the religion of the air that everybody's breathing. Well, God just, we don't need that. Secular humanism, which oh, is, I'm the goal of my life. And I need to protect me. We hear that all, all over. So God, man, God's the one that comes in his love he sends his son to die for us, to bear the penalty, to live the life that all of us are supposed to live, bear the penalty that none of us would be able to survive. And he rose from the grave so that we could have his resurrection life. It's the exchange. It's a beautiful, cosmic, wonderful, miraculous exchange. But what's what Peter does in this, he gives a historical Jesus. He really did exist, and God proved him by all the signs and miracles and wonders. It's theological because sin put him on the cross, but it's contemporary. Be saved today from this crooked generation. Every generation's crooked because every generation thinks it has the wherewithal in their pride that they're better than the generation that came before them. It's all of us. God, man, Christ, response. Repent. Put your trust in Jesus and live for him. And we show that with a commitment. So, my challenge is for you to learn the gospel presentation, God, man, Christ, response, and do it within five minutes. Write it out. Refine it. So, at a ready notice, you are able to give an explanation for the life that is in you. So what Peter tells the church later on in his letters. Hey, be ready. To do what? To give an explanation. Kind of like what I did on the day of Pentecost. Just gave an explanation of what people are seeing. But people have to see something. They do have to see the deeds. They have to, have to see something particular and peculiar about our lives. But we have to be ready to explain with words. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, I pray that we would be empowered by your spirit. And I pray, Lord, that those that we have been talking to and interacting with and praying for, because you lay them on our hearts in in weird ways, the unbelievers in our lives, God, I pray that this week you would give us opportunity to share the gospel. Please, God. Please. And may we, in that moment, experience the euphoria, oh, the pleasure, the joy, and the peace of knowing your spirit is, is welling up from an inside of us and flowing out. What a feeling of your presence. I pray that we would know it and we would rejoice. And God, would you add? Would you add to the kingdom through our lives? Would you please do that? Please. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so very appropriate that our commission is, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching, to, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Amen. God bless us. See you down the street in a few minutes.